0: Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish you had really begun to reign, so that we might also reign with you. He's talking about the apostles, the ones who taught them the gospel in the first place. He's pointing to the false perspective they have. And Paul's really laying it on thick to them. Like teenagers who squeeze their way out from under the authority of their parents. They're like young adults who think and speak and act as they know it all. Their parents can't tell them anything new. They've got it made. They don't need their parents anymore. The Corinthian church has become rebellious, assuming their own authority and judging things that they're really not Paired to judge, which is what we saw in the verses preceding these ones. The maturity they think they have is actually an inflated sense of self. Paul shifts from the criticism and points to the lives of the apostles now. Verse 9, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of, of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. As I was looking at the, at the various translations here for the for scripture, um, verse 9 stuck out to me as, as one that maybe the NIV doesn't do a really great job in communicating. I think maybe it's a little excessive in, in the word procession. So let's look at, a, at the ESV as more of a word-for-word word translation. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. I'll ask you, who is commonly sentenced to death? Criminal. Criminals. All right, people on death row. What do people on death row like normally do to get there? Hmm? Kill they kill somebody, or they murder somebody, or they rape somebody, or they steal and do something drastic that people view as terrible. Anybody have much sympathy for those people who are on death row? Not really, right? They're getting what they deserve. Anybody want to associate with them? They're kind of the forgotten people, right? They are just they're put in a section, they're separated in a separate section of a prison as they wait to die. So they don't even get to hang out with the other criminals. Paul is associating the apostles to those people who are sentenced to die or to the people in the Roman arenas who are sentenced to be killed and their death is made a spectacle, like, a, like an entertainment for everyone else. They're like the scum of the earth, the lowest of low. Nobody wants to associate with them. They're so inhuman that we will, like we're watching a movie, we'll just send them out to be eaten by lions or killed by gladiators, wrestlers. In front of everybody, their death, entertainment for everyone. That's how inhuman they are. Look at verse 9. Do you think it's interesting that Paul says, we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. So not only is he a spectacle to the world, but also a spectacle to the, to the realm of spiritual things as well. When Paul says, last of all, he means it. The very bottom of the barrel. Out of all creation and all that is spiritual and unseen, these men charged with proclaiming the gospel are viewed and treated as the lowest of low. People you wouldn't tell anybody you hung out with. People you wouldn't associate or even share a meal with or anything. As criminals or prisoners of war, like a plague on society, their suffering and striving to live their calling is played out in a dramatic way as they are beaten and sent to prison and killed and defamed. Paul's looking at the Corinthian church and he goes, Man, you guys are so mighty, you guys are so great, you've got it all together. You really must, because we over here, us apostles, I mean, we're just we're the scum of the earth. We're getting beaten for the name of Jesus. And you guys are really doing so well. The example that the apostles have been made into is a witness to the physical and the spiritual. Even the angels, God's servants, have seen the state which God's chosen apostles have endured for his glory. There's value in taking our time on these verses, allowing the words to preach to us as well. This is a letter that Paul's writing to the Corinthians, but it applies to us too. For the Corinthian readers, though, this rebuke is a massive gut check. And for us, it's a window into the lives of the men who went before us, men who sacrificed their lives for the sake of spreading the gospel to save as many as who would listen. These next statements that Paul gives should be convincing to the Corinthians, stating that the display of the apostles' lives is one every disciple should follow. An example that they have dismissed in an elevated view of themselves. Verse 10 says, We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise. We were weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we We bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. When we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. This is who we are, Paul seems to say. Who are you, dear people of the church? That list is convicting to me as well. I mean, how much for the sake of Christ have I endured some of these things? Verse 14 says, I'm writing this not to shame you but to warn you as my dear children. Hebrews 12, 6, different book. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Paul's rebuke, Paul calling them out, he's doing this out of love. Not to shame them or to tear them down, but to warn them. Verse 15, back in, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Even if you had 10,000 guardians, or you could translate that instructors, or guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Paul himself didn't give birth to them spiritually. But he participated as the God-given authority to present the good news of Jesus to them. He is the one who spiritually raised them as well and cared for them as a father would. And now he's saying all this because the Corinthian church has not only rejected him and what he's taught and the example that he's given, but they've decided that they've got it all together and they're doing their own thing. You see the teenager kind of mentality in that church? It seems like rebellious kids some of the church has disregarded him and his authority that he deserved. Verse 16 Therefore I urge you to imitate me. That's the whole point. You can underline that. That's the whole point of everything Paul is saying. For this reason I have sent you to I have sent you Timothy my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with, every, with what I teach everywhere in every church. You're not getting anything special. You're not getting anything different. You're getting the same thing I've taught everywhere else, he says. There is no two-faced to me. I present myself to you and the truth of the gospel, and that's what it is. We can ask from everything that Paul is telling the Corinthians, we can ask this question What are we imitating? What is Paul trying to convey by his example? What do you think? What is Paul trying to convey by his example? Ultimately, Paul is trying to convey how to live for and like Jesus Christ. So what he's trying to teach them applies to us as Jesus' disciples as well. A father, as you're raising—fathers know this too—as you're raising your son, you want them to follow in your footsteps— maybe not necessarily the same job you did but your purpose and your motivation and your values communicating you don't have to have the same exact job I do but live like I lived take my values and purpose and work ethic with you take my love for our family the care and protection I divided I provided the guidance and authority I was charged with, and do them in service and submission, just like I did. Paul is saying, live like Christ as I strive to. He wants us to pick up our cross and follow Jesus which he knows from firsthand will include suffering and hardship, rejection, humiliation, and likely physical affliction. We are really comfortable here in the United States, in Priest Lake, Idaho. We are very comfortable. Any hint of persecution that we face or get a whiff of, like we immediately turn our nose up and just try to avoid it. But Paul is saying that his embracing of that persecution is following Christ. We should expect that people will beat you up, both emotionally and physically. We really are insulated though, are we not? Like we think that that doesn't apply to us. That only applies to believers in China, believers in India, believers in Afghanistan. Our brothers and sisters who are enduring that persecution, that's that's for them. God has something different planned for me. I've got a couch, I've got a car. I've got friends. I've got the rights that that people can disagree with me, but they can't lay any hands on me. So I'm protected and insulated from the world. But the law only applies as far as people are willing to obey it. And it's able to be enforced. But very soon, you should expect that the law is not going to protect you or it won't have the capacity to protect you. And that your protection is going to come in your faith in Christ alone. Because God does not guarantee our physical safety, our comfort, our acceptance, our friends of the, like being friends of the world and all that kind of stuff. He actually tells us to expect conflict, to expect that people will hate us because of his name and that they will Kill us and persecute us and take our belongings. We should expect to be as disciples to follow in those footsteps of the apostles who are following in the footsteps of Jesus. They were dehumanized. I don't think that we should expect any different. You should expect that people will beat you up both emotionally and physically. You will be excluded, and the attacks you face will not only be material but also spiritual and supernatural. And that's the point. That is the root of the opposition toward you. And that is how we can have peace with the people, with our enemies, those people who persecute us and kill us, who have the potential to rape our wives and to steal our daughters. Because we don't battle against flesh and blood. Not against people, but against the evil that they live for, that they are controlled by, the devil and his demons, who we were once slaves to ourselves. John 15, 18 through 27. This is worth turning to. John 15, 18 through 27. Jesus is warning the disciples, these guys who we're supposed to be imitating. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me First. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. And we could stop there. We could and say, does the world love you as its own? Does the world recognize you as theirs? Or recognize you as Christ's? If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. You wonder why the United States isn't a Christian nation you wonder why they're in opposition to unborn life. They want, you wonder why when you try to say, hey guys, don't steal, don't lie, don't kill, don't do. All of those things, those are against what God has commanded us to do. They're not in opposition to you. They're in opposition to God. God. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Verse 26 is encouraging. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the father, he will testify about me. And you, must, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. He's talking to the apostles when he gives this message. But it applies to us as well. Those disciples following in their footsteps. Matthew 10.22 says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Persecution is something we should expect. I'll try not to jump I'm going to be jumping ahead by saying this, but why is it that Paul brings out the topic of persecution in contrast to how the Corinthian church is acting? Why doesn't he just say, Hey, love everybody, be at peace with everybody? Hey, that, that's way that that that's how you'll know you're acting the right way. We'll get there. Why is the message of life, message and life of the apostles laid on the church? Why is persecution the mark that Paul is displaying to the the Corinthians to point out their flaws? It is because they have become worldly. Indistinguishable from the culture they inhabit. No different from the people of their home. They think they've arrived at the end of their spiritual maturity, but the reality is they have not been disciples of Christ. They have been righteous bystanders becoming stagnant and at peace with the world, but peaceful for the wrong reasons. We are all to live at peace with everyone so far as it depends on us. That said, the message of the gospel is highly offensive to people. They are offended by the message that God will punish evil. They're offended because we're all guilty of that. They're offended that he provided grace and mercy for us by punishing and killing his son in our place. And when he raised Jesus to life again, he promised that all who put their faith, their trust in Christ alone, would be saved and resurrected into the new eternal life he promised, living this life now before we die and sealed by the Holy Spirit for all eternity. God with us and in us now and forever. That message is offensive because people think they're perfect. Nobody cares about God until they need him. And many won't recognize or admit that they need him until after they've died. People think that they're God, they can take his place and make decisions that only he can make. Enact justice that only he can do. They are controlling and want no authority in their life especially a God who is telling them that they are headed to danger and that he is the one who stepped in to save them. Despite his merciful love, most will reject him and that choice they make will result in death. So the fact that their selfish and sin-loving actions have consequences make them burn with anger because they are convicted Think about how you feel when someone questions you or demonstrates authority in your life. That is the conflict that we have with our parents, right? You're going over to steal a cookie from the cookie jar, and right as you reach in, right, your parents are like, hey, what's up? You're like, nothing. Just the presence of authority is painful when you know you're guilty, Right, driving sixty-two. Oh, there's police. Better hit on the brakes. Right, like you ever feel your heart sink because you're speeding and you see a, a police car? Just their presence. They haven't even arrested. They haven't even arrested you or convicted you of doing anything wrong. But you know that you did something you weren't supposed to do because you broke the law that we all agreed on. Or at least we elected people who. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> <coughs> But the point is, you're convicted because you know you did something wrong. So just the presence of their authority is offensive to you. Maybe your spouse or your parents look at you at the dinner table. They don't have to even be smiling. They can just look at you. Maybe your first reaction is, what? What? having immediately translated their gaze, thinking that they know the secret of something that you may have done wrong. When they were just admiring your presence. But now your guilt shows through. Guilt and the confirmation of condemnation trap us. We know that we are wrong, and we lash out at those who are either in authority or even friends trying to keep us accountable in love. That is the worldly reaction. The response the Holy Spirit leads us to is one of humility and repentance. The worldly response is one of defense and excuse and justification I mean, we're all here today because we know we need God. It is the Holy Spirit who convicted us and led us in our response to be repentant. To come to God in humble submission and say, I need you. Not with anger or justification or excuses. That is why the gospel offends Because people won't admit their sin. Won't believe that their Savior died for them. When people reject you, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting Christ. It's not all about you. (laughs) It's all about God. This is ultimately a rejection of Christ, of God who created us and loves us, of who created them and loves them. The gospel offends because people don't want God and you have him. Everything in your life is about him. So now just your presence, because the authority of God is present in your life, That authority offends them. So now just your presence is convicting. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. I think that's why we need to be very careful with what we say and how we say it, what we do and how we respond. So it's not us... Us, personally, that they're offended with. But that they're offended with the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. And you have him. Everything in your life is about him. So now just your presence is convicting. It's not really you, though. It's the Holy Spirit in you that they hate. God has separated us from the world... Made it a life that we can't return to, now having seen and tasted that the Lord is good. Put a little bookmark in Psalm 34. Now to the Corinthians specifically, Paul is saying, come down from your lofty, holy, comfortable place and live in the mud with me. where lives really lived for Christ grow, where pain and suffering is the road traveled by the redeemed, following in the footsteps of Jesus, who suffered for you in obedience to the Father. Don't be conformed to the world, but be conformed to the Spirit, which will make you an enemy to the world. You don't get to have both. There is no... Uh, armistice here. You can't be on both sides. You can't be a double agent. Live where lives really live for Christ grow, where pain and suffering is the road traveled by the redeemed, following in the footsteps of Jesus who suffered for you in obedience to the Father. Paul, in his warning, is trying to rally the Corinthian church to follow Christ. Not the world, not their wisdom, not men, not individual apostles, but their Savior. They need to get serious about who their faith is in. Let's look at verse 18 through 21 now. Some of you have become arrogant As if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And then verse 21 is really cute. What would you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline or shall I come in love with a gentle spirit? I'm going to show up soon, and those people who are talking the talk are going to have to display those actions. I would charge you, in, in addition to Psalm 34, which at a minimum, at a minimum, I would ask you just to pull up the Bible app on your phone today at some point, Or just flip your Bible over at some point, maybe before you eat lunch or uh, before you go to bed, before you go to bed. Read through that. But as a bonus to kind of put you on the same page that Paul is teaching the Corinthians, read Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15. They're not very long. And the only warning I'll give you is that once you start, you might not want to stop. <laughs> like it is every time you read your Bible often, yes? Mm-hmm. See, it's, it's often not reading much in, your, in Scripture. That's the, tr- that's the trouble. It's often just getting started. Because once you get started, you often find you don't want to stop. But Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15, they are parallels to much of what is taught in 1 Corinthians. They will help you where we are and where the rest of this book is going to go. Because if you read chapter 5, you'll see it's quite interesting (laughs) of 1 Corinthians. But let me leave you with part of Romans 12 here to close up. A little sneak peek to get you started. what God's will is unless you are transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ Jesus. For by grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with so somber judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed each of you. So because of the mercy given to you, submit yourselves by trusting Christ. Get down in the mud with the saints who have gone before you and humbly and boldly live your life for Jesus, expecting opposition, expecting not to belong in this world, but to belong to the kingdom of God. Boldly live your life for Jesus, the one who lived among us and carried the cross for your salvation, because one day you will reign with him. But for now, lock arms with us. Be the soldiers of Christ, whose banner is not a country or an ideology, but for God who saved sinners and loved you enough to save you.